Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be, to be back here. Um, when Jason asked me to come back, uh, and this seemed like uh, the right kind of date, uh, I said, well, actually, uh, I'll just have published a new book then, uh, and uh, so maybe I could talk about that. And so indeed it proved. Uh, this book appeared last week, actually. Uh, on, um, and I'm going to say something about some of the themes in it, uh, I, I don't have c copies to give you, but I did bring just a notice about it. I'll leave them there if anybody wants to follow up because obviously uh, in just 30 minutes or so, there's a limit to what I can say. Let me begin with a little bit of biography, autobiography. Uh, Twelve years ago, I moved to Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, before that, for a good many years, I had taught philosophy and I taught philosophical aesthetics. Uh, but I had done so in uh, secular universities. And when I was invited to come to Princeton, uh, I was invited to do something like that, but in the context of a seminary or school of divinity. And this uh, was a matter for me of exploration. Uh, it was, uh, would have been wrong for me to say I'll teach theological aesthetics because I'm not a theologian. At the same time, just to go on doing what I'd been doing in a secular university in a philosophy program clearly wasn't going to be quite right. Uh, so the official title they gave me was Professor of Philosophy and the Arts, so I had to find a way of matching these whilst also teaching uh, chunks of just philosophy. And the subsequent decade or more uh, is what led finally to this book. And this book is an effort uh, to both capitalize on the conversations I had with students, the way I was thinking about how I might bring philosophy to bear on the interests that uh, divinity students have in the arts. And I realized uh, over time uh, that what this required was, and hence my title for today and the title of the last chapter of the book, Rethinking the Sacred Arts. Now, why do we have to rethink the sacred arts? And I want to say a little bit about that and then just touch on what it uh, implies. Uh, let me begin with this question. Uh, if you listened to a uh, major uh, work of religious music, let us say uh, a Mozart mass uh, or a Bach's uh, St. Matthew Passion, if you listen to it, to some of the most wonderful music in the world, what difference does it make, and does it matter if you're listening to it uh, in a concert hall or as part of a service in church? What difference does it make, any or none? And if, it, if you think it makes a difference, then the question is, well, what difference does it make? Similarly, uh, if you go into a church and you uh, see some beautiful icons, let's say, or a triptych behind the altar or uh, some magnificent uh, biblical uh, episode captured in, say, Caravaggio's beheading of St. John, that's the one that comes to mind just as it happens. What's the difference between seeing it there and seeing it in uh, the museum, the art gallery? Uh, now, I think, uh, and finally, let me just say, uh, there are many beautiful churches. I know you're about to start the business of restoring uh, this one as a work of architecture, 
But especially in Europe, but elsewhere, some very fine churches have been turned into visitor centers or art museums or concert halls. What difference does that make to the architecture? Now, I'm not going to actually, to the experience of the architecture, I'm not going to talk about the architecture case. I do talk about it in the book because there's a different dimension to that uh, which would take us too far afield. So I'm just going to, when I need illustrations, uh, pick on the music and the visual arts. You can imagine the same thing for uh, other arts, for statuary, uh, for texts. What If you are studying the text of a beautiful hymn, a Charles Wesley hymn, some of the finest Christian poetry ever written, if you are studying that in a liter literature class, what's the difference between that and seeing the hymn in a service of worship? Now, I think uh, that partly because uh, the world and our world has for so long, at least uh, and, and more intensely in the last few decades, come to think of religion, and particularly the Christian religion, of course, and science as in some sense rivals, even perhaps enemies, or at least deeply in conflict, as a kind of reaction. Uh, they have thought that between faith and art, there is a natural alliance that faith and art should, in some sense, be supportive of each other. And that, I think, is the thought that lies behind a tremendous amount that has happened in theological aesthetics and in the establishment of institutes of art and religion and the sacred arts and so on. That art and, whereas religion and science are at loggerheads in some way, uh, art and religion are naturally allies. And I want to raise this question, is it true. And uh, the question has to be answered against the background of a bit of cultural history. And so I want to give you that cultural history right now. The word art, especially with a capital A, doesn't actually have a very long history. If you go back a few centuries, you will see that between art and technique, for example, uh, there was a, a very uh, similar use. Uh, in the uh, 17th century, people distinguished between the fine arts and the mechanical arts. The fine arts uh, included painting and music, but uh, they also included things like jewelry and um, ornamentation and so on. The mechanical arts included things like uh, uh, <clears throat> the mechanical engineering of carriages and clocks and various te technological devices of that sort. When did this distinction and this use of the arts to include clock making and jewelry and music, when did that cease? When did it fade away and be replaced by art with a capital A? And the answer is the 18th century. If you look at the history of the 18th century, in the course of it, that's when they started building art museums. That's when they started building concert halls and theaters for drama. That's when academies of art started, academies of painting and music and so on. That's when, as we say in my trade, the art world came into existence. Now, what 
happened with the emergence of the art world was not simply an institutional thing. It wasn't just that people suddenly took it into their head to build new buildings. Uh, rather, uh, it accompanied a changing way of thinking, a changing way of thinking about something called art uh, with a capital A. And over the 18th and 19th century, I think we can say that three leading thoughts came into view. And these lie at the heart of what a lot of people mean when they talk of art. First, uh, and this is a slogan that dates from the 19th century rather than the 18th, they thought that art should be engaged in its own, for its own sake, art for art's sake. That art for some other purpose, art for, let us say, advertising, or art for um, political and military recruiting, or something of that sort, was, uh, could be effective, uh, but really uh, it was not art properly so-called. Art itself should be for its own sake. Secondly, they thought uh, that art should be for its own sake because there's a realm of experience which isn't knowledge, which isn't morality, which isn't uh, theology. It's the aesthetic experience. Not religious experience or moral experience, but aesthetic experience. And the aesthetic experience is something uh, that uh, you have to uh, attain or uh, appreciate through attention. So not only is art for art's sake, so don't, don't mess around with other uh, derivative instrumental purposes, it's also because what's on offer? is a certain kind of experience, distinctive experience. And if you're rushing through life and don't stop and think and look, uh, then you'll miss out on the aesthetic experience. And the third leading thought <coughs> was that what's essential to aesthetic experience is a kind of, a kind of contemplation. So it was actually in the 18th century that people in general had to be taught to stop and wait and listen. When the Louvre in Paris first became a museum and gallery, as opposed to Royal Palace, then they had to put up notices that told people not to use these wonderful long galleries as bowling spaces. You're here to see the pictures, right? Similarly, Mozart actually complained to his father that when he went around playing, of course, Mozart, one of the greatest composers ever, then people didn't uh, stop talking. And they would be eating and drinking while he's playing. People had to be taught. And that's partly why they started building concert halls. Sit down, shh, quiet, listen. And thirdly, in theatricals, uh, people had to be told, you're here to sit still in the darkness and watch a performance. When Shakespeare's plays, and there's no better, uh, bigger name in drama than Shakespeare, when Shakespeare's plays were originally performed, People sold stuff, uh, food and drink, and shouted and called across. And here's these guys uh, trying to uh, act out some of the greatest drama ever, while the audience is saying, well, fair enough, but we're also here for a chat and uh, some snacks and so on. People had to be taught. Why were they taught? Because so the idea of art came. You've got to stop, be still, give it attention. Now, it's that third element, I think, uh, the idea that art is essentially contemplative. 
that has led people to think uh, that it has a natural alliance with faith. Now, let me make two observations about this. First, of course, it is true that the Latin phrase, the vita contemplativa, the contemplative life, is, uh, uh, has its origins in Christian devotions, but it has its origins in manuals for monks. It captures the distinctive religious orientation of the monastery and the convent, not of the parish church or the cathedral or the youth group. So if you do think that the alliance of art and faith, that there is an alliance there and uh, it's one to be exploited, you are signing up, at least in part, to the idea uh, that the connection between art and faith is via one mode of religious life and experience, the contemplative life. Secondly, in holding up art with a capital A and preaching the doctrine of art for art's sake, <clears throat> the art world claimed for itself an exclusive value uh, that could not, by implication, be found elsewhere. So the idea was, if you want an artistic, aesthetic experience, you've got to get yourself to the art museum or get yourself to the concert hall or to the theater. That's where art proper, as it's sometimes called, is to be found. Now, I just observe, incidentally, that uh, as time marched on, uh, people have found it harder and harder to get people to attend, ordinary folks, to attend to art proper. Uh, the Museum of Modern Art usually has a, a long line, but in most places, if you up the charge to make it actually economically viable, uh, you wouldn't succeed. That is not true of rock concerts. Uh, rock concerts and, uh, do not require uh, the Paul Gettys of this world or the Rockefellers of this world to put up very large sums of money. The same thing is true, actually, of modern, most modern classical music. <coughs> I know from having once been member of uh, a music club committee, we had to uh, actually run concerts that people would pay to attend, and it became very rapidly obvious, as though we had not known, if you put um, make a concert completely, or even half, of modern classical composition, you will run at a very serious loss. Can't do it. Can't do it. And actually, I was trustee of a, an arts festival once where we had a lot of music and drama, and somebody said, we really should have a video art installation. And uh, I was not averse to that, but I did say, what's the income stream going to be? Well, they said there won't be any. There won't be any income stream. And so indeed it proved there wasn't any. So somebody else has to pay for it. Why would they pay for it? Well, because this is art proper. Well, wait a minute. Let's just ask what people will pay for. Is there a dimension to what people will pay for uh, that is important to remember? And the answer is 
Yes. If you think about uh, your day-to-day -day experience, it's not true that the aesthetic element is only when you take yourself to the museum or the gallery or the concert hall. You are very much concerned with the aesthetic dimension of food, clothing, furniture, gardens, landscapes, all sorts of things. And it is not true uh, that you could cast all of this into realms of mere design or, uh, actually the, the term de design itself is complex, or into utilitarian things. No, people want to look good. They want to eat well. Uh, they want to feel at home. And all of these human things have an aesthetic dimension. So if you live in a dump, then it may actually keep you dry and warm. Uh, in that sense, it will be habitable, even a habitation. But it's natural. Most of us do want more than that. We want it to look good. We want it to feel good. So actually, contrary to this idea of art with a capital A, the aesthetic is in all of our lives. But now if you think about that notion of the aesthetic, then where and why uh, do we see it and value it? We don't see it and value it by stopping and standing. I mean, occasionally you might buy yourself a new suit of clothes or something and stand and admire it. But you generally don't do that. You wear it and the point the point of its beauty is to be worn. Similarly, uh, if you think of food beautifully arranged, the point isn't to sit there and look at it. If it were, a plastic model of the food would be just as good. The point is to eat it and enjoy it. Now, <clears throat> uh, there is, in fact, uh, uh, one philosopher from the 19th century who resisted and opposed uh, the uh, high-minded or high-art conception, and that was Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche is uh, mistakenly thought to have been some ally of the Nazis. That isn't true. But what is true is that Nietzsche is uh, 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 the arch-critic of all arch-critics of the Christian faith. And it was Nietzsche who declared uh, in the loudest voice, God is dead. He didn't think he'd shown that. He thought we could just take that for granted. God is dead, so now what? And that was partly what the, uh, his interest in the aesthetic was. He thought, and for good reason, if God is dead, that the artistic and the aesthetic has to flow into the space that the death of God has left. So Nietzsche was one of the first to see but actually, uh, art and faith can be rivals in this sense that art aims to replace faith. Why? Because God is dead. But the other thing that Nietzsche saw uh, and was that it's a mistake to cast all of the arts into this contemplative mode. Let us just take music. Now, it is true, especially because we live in a world that has uh, been 
influenced very powerfully by the mechanics of recording. So because of the power of recording, which remember, it's relatively new, we are inclined to think of music as first and foremost something to be listened to. It's in the background, or we turn on, uh, we, we download it, whatever we do, uh, we listen to music. But of course, listening to music would be impossible if someone had not made music in the first place. And the making of music is actually, when you think about it, crucial. Suppose a composer composes on the page, and I just say notation and scores are relatively relative, new tune. Suppose it is the case uh, that uh, the composer uh, writes it all out. Then it's still waiting to become music. So the reality, the realization of music has to be made, made real. How? By playing it, by singing it, by being musical. And this is one of Nietzsche's great uh, insights, I think, uh, that when you think of music as, when you think of art as contemplative, then this has a very distorting effect when you think about music. It's a very distorting effect because it makes you think that the music making is somewhere there. It's the listening the contemplative, uplifting listening that is the real business. No, the real business is making. And when you begin to think about that, you think there are at least two importantly different ways to engage with music. One is to sit and listen. We're all familiar with that. The other is to play. And you can engage or try to with music of the greatest quality ever composed practically. So if you are a member of a choir, uh, you may not be the greatest singer on God's earth, but still you can sing and participate in singing some of the greatest music ever written. Not by listening, but by doing. And so too, if you're a pretty less than mediocre, below mediocre pianist as I am, then uh, nobody wants to listen to you play unless they're crazy. But, they, uh, but what you can do is engage by playing with the sort of creative mind that is Beethoven's or Bach's or Mozart's. Now, that, when you think about that case, you think here. Here is a practical engagement, a practical engagement with art. It might be a practical engagement with art in designing clothes, uh, in playing music, or amateur dramatics, or actually reading poetry. Uh, this practical engagement is central uh, to the role of art in our everyday lives. Let me now speed on uh, to religion. I take it that the Christian, we could argue about this, so I'm, I'm going to stop soon, but we could argue about this, but we, we, we uh, turn to it. I take it that the Christian religion is not a, an explanation or a doctrine or a, in, uh, a set of propositions or beliefs. It's not even a set of moral principles. It is, and this may sound rather trite, but it's true, it is a way of living your life. So the Christian faith is essentially practical. 
And as a way of living your life, then, you can do it this way or that. If what I've been saying about the aesthetics of, and the practical aesthetics of everyday life is true, then to rethink the sacred arts is not to make alliances uh, with art museums and galleries and theaters. I don't, uh, I don't uh, think that's a, a bad thing. I mean, um, there was a very successful um, exhibition of uh, Faces of Christ. Uh, actually, there was one in London, but there was one in Philadelphia, too. Huge numbers of people showed up. Uh, it's tempting, I think, for Christian people to think, see, we really still matter. But the crucial question is, yes, but do you matter here or do you matter there? And that returns me to my starting place. What is the difference between <coughs> um, uh, a work of religious music, including words, let's just say, in a service of worship and in a concert hall? And in a way, it doesn't take much to uh, answer that question. In the context of a church service, it's an act of worshiping. It's not an act of contemplating. Now, when you begin to think about the full implications, and I'm going to stop in just a moment, the full implications of that way of thinking, <coughs> some very important issues arise about the nature of worship. What is the fundamental nature of worship? For whom is worship ultimately intended? If you say, it's for me, I go for spiritual uplift. Look, I've had a hard week, right? So I've done this and that, I up, up, then you will think, plausibly, that there is a natural alliance between Christian faith and art. Because after all, why do you go to the concert hall? You've had a busy week. You want an uplift. Why do you go to the art gallery? Let's step out of the hecticness. So there will be. But if you were to think, if you were to think, no, the point, the purpose of worship is God not me, not to uplift me, but to give God what is right and proper, to give him thanks and praise. The old Sersum Corda says it is right and proper always to give God thanks and praise. Then you will start rethinking the sacred arts because you will not say, what do I like? What inspires me? What does uplifts me? Instead, you will say, what is good enough for God? And that brings us actually back to its connection with ordinary life. And with this example, I'll finish. We don't just cook things. We don't just make dresses. The French have expressions, haute cuisine, haute couture. Think of someone getting married. They don't think, what's going to keep out the cold, keep me dry if the rain comes on? They think, what will be a suitable dress for a wedding? And it's that notion of what is good enough where the aesthetic comes in. And so too, when we turn our attention to rethinking the sacred arts, 
we forget. Uh, this is me now taking a stand. But we, we should relinquish to some extent, maybe a lot, the idea that we can have alliances with concert halls and or that our work should be alliances with concert halls and galleries and instead turn the other way and think, look, art and the aesthetic are critical, crucial actually, to finding a way in which we can give God thanks and praise that is good enough. Anyway, with that I'll stop. I think we have about 15 minutes. I'm sorry it's so condensed, but time is short.